Hi, and welcome to the When Women Fly podcast, where we speak with women who dare to pursue their dreams and fly, literally and metaphorically. I believe that every woman harbors the spirit of flight, and we are here to talk about it, to examine what happens physically, mentally, and emotionally when we rise to meet the challenge, live life head on, defy gravity, and have the courage to rewrite the notions of what we can and should do. On this show, we are here to share versions of flying. If you are curious about untapped potential, you are in the right place. I am your host, Sylvia Winter, a pilot, runner, skier, mother, designer, and apparently podcaster. Thank you so much for being here today. This is our second compilation episode. These are really fun for us to produce, and the feedback we've received indicates that you want more. If you haven't listened to episode 99, Transitioning into Motherhood, take note and cue it up. It was our first compilation. These give us a chance to go wide, drawing from our over 100 episodes, and thread the needle, make a point, and shine a light together with a theme. Episode 99 was a deep dive into motherhood for mothers and daughters and all of us. And you loved it. So here is our second compilation. The theme of this podcast is responding to challenges that involve work and life. I almost said work-life balance, but I think we quickly learned that there's a myth there. Maybe it's harmony. Maybe it's something else we don't have language for yet. So this time, as we started the compilation with this thought of work-like balance, it quickly became a bigger conversation. Something was bubbling up about the myths of work-life balance and the importance of prioritizing mental health, compartmentalizing as a useful skill to coping, and finding happiness in what we love doing, even when it requires challenges and resilience. What does it mean to be resilient? Because it seems like it's a key to happiness. How do you cultivate that inner strength? How do you catalyze discomfort into growth? A cornerstone of this podcast is exploring why we should do hard things. First, we talked to Dr. Edie Greenblatt, who earned her PhD in the joint program in organizational behavior at Harvard University and the Harvard Business School. She is a transformational coach, an educator, an integration visionary, and an entrepreneur. Her blended solutions include aerial arts and flying trapeze, embodied and peer coaching, world dance, ethnographic analysis, and off-site resilience retreats. Let's talk about limits and balance. Or is that even the right way to look at it? Dr. Greenblatt doesn't think it is. We next hear from Shasta Ways, the first female certified civilian pilot born in Afghanistan. In 2017, she became the youngest woman to fly solo around the world. Let me just say that again. She became the youngest woman to fly solo around the world in a single engine aircraft. She talks about what she needed in the transition after her big journey around the world, the re-entry, 
After flying around the world, it wasn't another big goal or the next big thing that she needed, even though it seemed like everyone else did. How do we honor taking care of our mental health as much as our achievement goals? We then hear from Mandy Hickson, former Royal Air Force pilot of the tornado, entrepreneur, author, and motivational speaker. She picks up where Shasta leaves off, addressing real tools for navigating stressful, high-pressure activities. What if our feelings and even our happiness can be shifted through our actions? Can we do hard things and be happy? How? And finally, we have a clip from Nikki Stone, who competed in the 1998 Winter Olympic Games in Nagano, Japan. She's best known for being the first American to win a gold medal as an inverted aerial skier. Aerial skiing is a sport where athletes ski into a three-meter snow jump at approximately 40 miles per hour, fling themselves in the air, flip and or twist at a height of over 50 feet, and then land on a 45-degree hill. Nikki speaks to what makes her happy and mental health and resilience. And Super Bowls, why she carries them around and gives them away. So this episode will speak to you. It will ask of you and it will inspire you. Thank you for being here today. Let's jump in. First, as promised, Dr. Edie Greenblatt. What people mean when we usually talk about work-life balance is that work is draining and depleting and the rest of life is restorative. But really, I don't think most women or most people altogether would honestly subscribe to that oversimplification. What if work is actually a bit energizing and the rest of life is depleting? This is a call to be really aware of what restores and what depletes you, to update it and assume nothing. Assume it will change. And Edie gives advice about how to build a system that honors that rather than striving for balance. The full-length episode is number 29, Edie Greenblatt. I'd love to pivot and actually talk about your book, Restore Yourself, and hear about some of the frameworks that you use in that program. Restore Yourself came out in the days when I gave advice about not looking at your BlackBerry too much. So uh, it needs an update. But the concepts are still there and they're still valid. Fortunately, I got lucky. (laughs) The research was broad enough and uh, sort of basic enough. Mm -hmm. The research, this is based on the findings of the dissertation work on the club med geos and then later research and things on that. Mm -hmm. We don't talk about the geos in the book. So if you want to hear stories about good looking tan scuba diving instructors, they're not there. I have to write that book one day. They're just, that's not it. It's mostly, you know, how to do this. Okay. Right. Right. But the concept is called personal resource management. It's right. How do you manage your energy? And uh, it's fundamentally starts with the concept that we have a myth about work-life balance that keeps us from solving the problem. So that myth is that we fundamentally believe that work is depleting and non-work is restorative, right? Thank God it's Friday. Wednesday's over the hump day. I'd rather be fishing, right? Think about all the phrases we use, which really say work's no fun and, you know, non-work is fun. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, what's wrong with the model, right? You want to take a guess? Your gut will know it. 
right? It's behaviors and conditions that either restore or deplete our energies, our physical energies, our emotional energies, our cognitive intellectual capacity, whatever dimension. It's the behaviors and conditions under which we live and, and engage that affect us. Mm-hmm. So if we can stop trying to wiggle and manage work and non-work and instead actually define the question mm-hmm. for what restores and depletes me, then we can actually make some headway in solving it and addressing it. Mm-hmm. So that's the idea. So there are two fundamental actions that one would take. The first one is become an expert at diagnosing what restores and depletes you. But really carefully think about trying to figure out what food you're allergic to, right? You know, you need to figure out how to isolate and categorize things you need. Mm-hmm. And the book helps people figure that out. The other thing you need to do is you need to manage it on a regular basis. Every day, every hour, every week, every month, at home, at work, when traveling, designing vacations, designing things. And it's, you know, sim- you know, you wouldn't, every time you take an action, you kind of figure out the financial implications. Mm-hmm. And every time you take an action, you figure out the implications on, you know, the, your children's long-term welfare. You need to stop and do the same kind of analysis, like, okay, how's this going to hit, how's this going to land in terms of my resilience, my ability or the ability of other people to actively restore themselves or how, you know, if we get people too depleted, they fall below the burnout line and then bad things happen. Mm-hmm. It's actually a more challenging process, I think, than many of us would would readily assume. Because I think that the amount of things that deplete us that optically shouldn't deplete us because of either the category or because we're very accomplished in the thing and thus we should continue doing the thing even if it is really depleting. And it makes me think a lot about just being honest, right? Like that, that work or just being honest with yourself. And, and in doing that, sometimes there's friction with other people too. And is that, is that a component that you talk about in the book or how to, how do you sort of coach through that, both being honest with yourself and getting in touch with that and itemizing it, but then also moving through the world in ways that may be different from the way people knew you before, if it's, if it involves a change to avoid the burnout. So. How do you enroll people in helping? The process is not in the book. It's a nice little book. <laughs> that's part of the coaching world. I do resilience coaching, and that's part of mm-hmm. part of helping people implement things. Mm-hmm. But in order to implement, you need to understand. You need to be able to diagnose, assess, and assess and recommend. Mm-hmm. So, in terms of assessment, we have an assessment in the book that helps people sort of figure out some sources of depletion and restoration for them. That helps them start to use this approach. Mm -hmm. There are three musketeers of resilience that I talk about. If you have the words and the ability to discuss this, you can have the conversations, right? Instead of saying, I hate it when you do this, it's easier if you say, listen, these are the behaviors and conditions that deplete me. Can we Mm -hmm. change some of it around so that Mm -hmm. it doesn't? Mm -hmm. Or can I do it? Because for me, it's restorative. For you, it's depleting. So why don't I do it? Right. So the three musketeers of resilience, number one, is that it's don't get stuck in social tags. Right. It's not a commute or a vacation. Right. If a commute has restorative conditions and behaviors for you, then it's restorative. It's not a negative to have a long commute. Okay, 
you're not a bad mommy if your kid being out is restorative. You're not a bad mommy, right? I can tell you what's restorative mm-hmm. because you've reduced the depleters, right? The cognitive load of being hypervigilant, right? Like, okay, the neighbor took the dog yesterday for an hour. And I love this dog and I wouldn't, I would be a mess without this dog during COVID. I can tell you exactly how I was able to restore absent the dog. So number one, be really clear on the behaviors and conditions and don't judge them, right? Number two, they're different for everybody. If I give you warm, dry towels, sometimes I have four, 500 people, 700 people in a room. And I say, okay, warm, dry towels straight out of the dryer. They have to be folded and put away. For whom is this reliably restorative? A third of the room will raise their hand and everybody will look around thinking they're the only crazy person who likes to fold towel. Oh, that's so interesting. Right? Why? Because I get to think, because they're warm, they feel good. The edges are square. I get to finish something. Right. Right? Okay. And why? Okay. And then the ones who hate it, why do you hate it? Well, you know, it's a waste of time and I can't get it right. And my wife gets mad no matter what I do. And I I, I shouldn't, I'm too good for, right? Okay. Yeah. We're different. It's okay. We're different. Make use of that. If all things are equal, the people should do the restorative stuff, right? Or you should tweak it so that it feels restorative. If being, you know, if doing this work is cold and being cold is depleting, put on a sweater and then do it. The third thing is that they change over time. Mm -hmm. And this has been very important during COVID. Okay. They change over time. So something that used to be depleting can become restorative. Cooking, you know, cooking lunch for your kids used to be restorative until you had to do it every freaking day for a year and a half when you couldn't go pick your own vegetables because the the vegetables you're getting from the delivery make you crazy because the part about that was restorative was the creative enjoy it right okay Mm -hmm. they change over time and you have to be aware because sometimes we say oh that restores me and then it doesn't anymore or things that used to be depleting became restorative right going to the supermarket became restorative for a lot of people because they could finally get out of the house right? People who are novelty seekers were suffering dramatically. So really important to sort of understand that those things, and you alluded to this, and this is related to they change over time. We can overdose. Mm-hmm. Things that are restorative become depleting. You get too much of them. That's a lot of people are on overdose. Gee, I only wish I could just stay home. I travel too much. I just wish I could see more of my kids. I just wish I could work remotely more. Mm-hmm. So we can overdose on anything. Yeah. So that's, and, and it's important not to judge yourself. Listen, we are who we are. We're 50%, basically 50% nature, 50% nurture. And, you know, during a pandemic, when all of your options are locked down is not the time to decide that your nature sucks. And, you know, you're going to change how you nurture yourself when there are reduced options. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think one of the challenges in this day also is this sort of happyology Instagram visual culture that really doesn't help us get underneath the skin of what's really going on and being honest with ourselves and other people. I think that sort of works in contrast. And and some people I think are, you know, a little more stoic, probably because of their upbringing. And I think some are more able to kind of go there. I get a sense that you're, you're not afraid to go there. And I think that's really refreshing. If we sit with Edie's message and bring Shasta ways on board, we get something equally as honest. This single focus and determination and sacrifices 
it takes to achieve something great, like flying around the world, will come to a peak. And where do we go at the backside of that accomplishment? Shasta honors the pause. She shuts out the noise and the external factors that are asking her to push on, to have the next big thing, to grind. Sometimes, maybe you need to step back. How is this linked to mental health? Well, it's everything. If you have not already, please listen to the full-length episode with Shasta. It's episode 58. Here we go, Shasta Ways. Somewhere in there, you got married, and you have a child now, and you've yourself now lived overseas, and you're sort of in a different chapter now. What can you share with us about this chapter after that global flight and how you're directing your goals now? When I finished the global flight, it was such a big relief because I was done and I, I had had so many great experiences. And I, we were able through the nonprofit to impact 3,000 children. So what that means is I met face-to-face 3,000 kids around the world sharing this message of aviation and STEM. And that was so impactful. It was so powerful for me to be in that position and also to prove to myself that I could fly around the world. It was a lot to digest. And I just remember people saying, well, what's next? Like, what can we expect next? And it was very overwhelming. So I took some time off and I'm a big believer that life has to be balanced. You know, I had spent five years like immersed into this project and now it came to a stop. I had no social life. I had no, like, I didn't do anything for fun other than prepare and plan and fundraise. So I wanted to make it more balanced and focus on my personal self, my well-being. I ended up getting married and I moved overseas, which was a blessing in some ways because it allowed me to just really disconnect. And and I had a sweet baby boy. So it's great to be 100% for your career all the time. But for me, balance is so important. So I've taken some time off to focus on those avenues. And I'm so grateful for it because it allowed me to think about my future and what I wanted to do in this next chapter. And a lot of people thought that it was me flying, which that will always be a part of my identity. But there were some things that I wanted to do personally for the industry. And now having time to think about it and reflect on it and work on it, I'm able to do that. Um, so very grateful for, for this, this time to just take a break. Yeah. Sometimes we get really wrapped up in the perpetual motion of doing. What's your next flight? What's your next project? But the being part that we need to nurture is sometimes uh, left on the wayside. And then we get out of the habit of it and we can get in some trouble, which is a great segue to talk about mental health and wellness in aviation. And I know that's a topic that you really like to talk about as well. So what is not being said and where do we need to pull back the curtain? I think just recently we've been talking about mental health and aviation. So there's so much that isn't being said really. And there's so much that we need to dive into. But for me, after completing this trip, there was so much that I I, I felt like 
I need to to work on. And it was a bit like nobody had had asked me, are you feeling okay? And when I would talk about the tough moments, I could feel myself like just the stress of it again. And although that's what people want to hear, like what happened? What were the highlights? What were the exciting parts? What were the scary parts? I knew like I needed to go and process that and come to, to peace with it. And so I think in general, we do these extraordinary things. We fly these incredible machines. We go places that not many people go to. And there's a lot of mental health factors that can go into this. That's just one side of it. Then you have the side of just what airline pilots go through from leaving their families. They have personal things going on, but yet they have to come to work. They show up, they fly from here to there. Like there's just so much that we haven't talked about. And people in aviation are not superhumans. We're not superwoman or superman. We are human just like everybody else. And we are in a very high stressful, high fast paced moving environment. And we're doing ourselves a disservice by not being able to talk about it or, or to have more dialogue around it. And, you know, I, I get it. I mean, honestly, if I knew the pilot who was flying my aircraft from Dubai to America had all these mental health issues, I would be a little worried, too. And so I, I get the tabooness of it or the stigma around it. But I just think, sadly, it's a matter of time when something will happen. And things have happened. There's been aircraft accidents where, sadly, the pilots have had mental breakdowns, and there's been a very catastrophic result to that. And so, just like with any human beings, any professions, we need to make sure we're protecting our people, and that that we find a way around it so that it isn't taboo. That if someone is struggling, their licenses won't be taken away, and it won't be this very difficult process to go back to flying. And I'm certain we can get there. We just need to keep having more conversations about it. Right. And providing very safe places where people can share and not feel either shamed or or worse, obviously lose their job. Exactly. Yeah. I feel like that challenge is part of of a few professions that I can think of. I think it is changing. The conversation is, is out there more than it has been before. So even us talking about it now. Yeah, very true. Next, we hear from Mandy Hickson on insights from within that high-pressured life and real tools for managing the whole person. She talks about her performance and her mental health. The full-length interview is worth a listen or a re-listen. She is a hoot, and this woman who flew a tornado and defies all odds in a male-dominated world, is alive with lessons learned from the challenges of intensely pressured environments that require commitment and sacrifice. After all, we endure, we can do hard things, we get that. But Mandy has real tools, compartmentalizing. Listen to her own voice. The full-length episode is number 91. Here we go, Mandy Hickson. Yeah, so there is this incremental sort of series I'm seeing of during university. It was, it sounds like it was a pretty easy as far as it wasn't stressful. Flying was just something you learned and there was incremental improvement and you were able to achieve what you wanted to. And then, and then it sort of, I have this 
this image of like these like walls starting to be put around you and tests that you're put through. And then, of course, the test of your confidence, too, with being a test case and the pressure that that was on you. And it, it seems to me that you were able to compartmentalize that and not have that drain you. I want to just bring touch on one of the points that you mentioned there, which was that compartmentalizing. And I think that's a really fascinating word. And I think when you talk to a lot of people who have achieved perhaps fast jet level, that side of things, they do have the ability to compartmentalize. So you'll be on a flight, for example, and something happens, you realize that you've not done very well on it. That's a potential fail maybe on that flight. But you have the ability to go, well, that's fine. I can't do anything about that now. I'm going to put that behind me, compartmentalize it totally. I'm going to move on. And there was a huge distinction between those people that could do that and the ones that self-flagellated and said, oh my goodness, that's happened. And they would just start to talk themselves in this awful, awful circle and they would fail the whole trip because they couldn't put it behind them. And that whole ability, I think, to compartmentalize is something that actually when you look at high achieving people, they, they tend to be able to do that a lot better than others sometimes as well. I think that comes with a little resilience too. And it's also just to continue on this, I think it comes with the importance of also then the debrief. Because if we just compartmentalize, then we have this, you know, huge closet of like things that we've never actually processed, which isn't beneficial on either sort of a professional level, but also an emotional level as well. Yeah. And and actually it's something that's really held me in good stead for doing speeches. So in lockdown, for example, I had two teenage boys. They were 15 and 16 in lockdown. They were not particularly interested in academia at all. And they refused to do any work. And so I was trying to home educate these two boys who had no desire to do it. Literally, we were clashing. We were ending with these screaming arguments. And I'm a really positive person. And this was real. And I don't like confrontation as well. This was really upsetting me. Meanwhile, I was building my business as a keynote motivational And I was literally going from screaming downstairs and crying to going, and I'm in my office and I'd put some lipstick on, I'd get on the line and I'd go, hi, everyone. And within, you know, I used to think, my gosh, how can you even do this, Mandy? You're distraught minutes ago, but you have the ability to stop that, compartmentalize it. And one thing I would say is it's why it goes well with that fake it till you make it or fake it till you feel it. Because actually it doesn't work for mental health huge mental health problems. But if you're feeling a bit low, you've had an argument with your partner and then you go to a, a meal out with friends and you pretend that you're happy with each other. By the end of the night, you probably will be happy with each other because you know what you've pretended. And when it's the same as when you're speaking, so you'll be there putting all this positive energy down the screen. By the end of it, I was genuinely feeling great. All the same endorphins have been released, whether you're pretending that you're happy or whether you actually are happy. Mm-hmm. The would know this as well, and they'd know that the second I walked out, I would then be in a good mood. So then they would try me with the other things that they wanted because they're <laughs> a different frame of mind. Blooming children. So yeah, they're too wise. Well, it is. It's, you know, it's interesting. I, I totally can understand what you're saying. And there is something about the way that our sort of body goes through, you know, whether we're telling it to do it or it's motivated by some other thing, if we're, our body goes through sort of the happy gestures <laughs> or the positive gestures, then cognitively, then we identify those as, oh, I guess she's happy now. <laughs> and then we're like, okay, we'll be happy. I mean, this is super simplistic, but 
there is something about the, I guess what I'm getting at and supporting what you're saying is that the, the way that our body goes through something then often informs the way we're thinking about it, which then kind of feeds back rather than like all it being in our head and okay, well, how do I get in a positive mindset? Like, well, just if be positive and then that's a really good place to start without hopefully repressing the things, which is, we don't want to do that, but there's a place for that as well and processing everything. Definitely. Our final clip shifts to Nikki Stone. Let's talk about the limits of performance and achievement and finding happiness there. What is your true ceiling? How do you frame failures? Are they supporting your goals? More on hard shells and soft centers, super balls and lessons from hitting hard as a means to rising strong, recovering from injury, and winning a gold by flying in the full-length episode number two with Nikki Stone. For now, let's zone in on the challenges of finding happiness there and how to rise and fall like a super ball. Another way that you organized your book was in with a set of core principles around passion, focus, commitment, overcoming adversities, confidence, risk, teamwork, the whole gamut. Yeah. You also mentioned organize, prioritize, stay on track to avoid the downward spirals. And I wondered, this is sort of a segue into the mental health question that I want to get into with you, but this um, book and a lot of your teaching is a roadmap for success, but is it also a roadmap for happiness? Oh, most definitely. I think, I think that is success. I don't necessarily think you have to win a gold medal in order to say you're successful. I think the greatest success is finding happiness in life, um, regardless of what the accomplishment is. And so for me, I am happier and feel more accomplished with my kids than I do my gold medal. And so a lot of that is, is the happiness that they bring to my life. And so it's important to have that mental health, to have the understanding of finding ways in order to bring ourselves happiness. And for some people, it's through accomplishments. And for other people, it's, it's through family and, and feeling loved. But we have to find what that thing is that brings us happiness in order to have that type of success. Mm-hmm. In the film, uh, Weight of Gold by, with Michael Phelps and the other Team USA athletes, they bring out in the light of day the mental health challenges of high performance yeah. and Olympic athletes. And it's a powerful very sad situation. The public persona, identity, the sense of validation through accomplishments and achievements, measures, numbers, medals, it seems to undermine the growth and the healthy sense of self, especially at the young ages that most of these athletes are. How do you see mental health and high performance intersecting in their optimal way? You have to be content and happy with your own accomplishments. Like I said, like after. I landed my jump at the Olympics, I was ecstatic, no matter if that meant that I was standing on the podium or not. You know, you have to be happy with how you do. And I have no control over anyone else. I have no control over what the other women did. I had no control over what the judges thought. I had no control over the weather. And so all I can feel success with is how I actually went about my day and my accomplishments. And, you know, for me, it was an enormous accomplishment to be able to come back from an injury when 10 doctors told me it wasn't possible. And I think a lot of that is missed in sports. I think 
a lot of people focus too much getting the trophy. And, and it's why I don't ever agree with everyone gets a trophy because I actually learned more and gained more in my bad days, the days that were challenging than I did my good days. Mm-hmm. And so it's all in how you frame it and how you're looking at it. And if you're only there for the medal, you know, I, I won't share any names, but I know there are many top athletes that are only seeking the medal. They're staying in another four years for the next Olympic Games just so they can get that medal. Mm-hmm. And really, you have to love and learn from every single day that gets you to that point. And the, me- the medal is, is something that you're, of course, striving for, but you also have to be okay if you don't achieve that. Mm-hmm. Is there any advice that you would have given your younger self? I don't know if I would because I think you have to go through the lessons in order to learn them. Mm-hmm. You know, you can sit there and tell people a certain thing. You know, like I can tell something to my daughter or son as they're going out for a soccer game or a dance competition. But me just talking to them doesn't mean anything unless they they go through it and feel it and understand, you know, the heartache and and the joy. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if I would change anything that I did. I don't know if I would give myself any advice except to take it all in, to understand that there's a lesson in everything we learn. And I remember growing up that my parents, you know, I'd have bad days and they'd say, it's really just a day of learning a lesson. You know, like this is a great day that you learn something. And I remember saying to them at one point, I'm sick of learning lessons. I want to win. <laughs> <laughs> You want you want to be able to hack that, yeah. right? Do the shortcut, yeah. right? And I needed it. I needed those days. Um, you know, I know there's some athletes that that achieve their medal or achieve their success without having that really challenging, difficult road. But I don't think it's as meaningful as someone who's had to go through a lot of things in order to accomplish, you know, one of their greatest feats. You know, like with my spinal injury, there were so many people said, you know, like, what did you do to come back from that? What was the surgery you had? What was the doctor you saw? And yes, they were all helpful in order for me to come back. But it all came down to what I was willing to put in. You know, I worked harder than anyone could imagine in order to come back from this injury. It wasn't something that was handed to me. And there's no quick fix in life. You know, if you want to accomplish something, you put in the hard work. On that note, this is a great segue. Tell us about your Super Bowls. When I had my injury, there was a quote that I found by General George S. Patton that says, success is how high you bounce after you hit rock bottom. And in that moment, I realized, you know, you, if you're soft and you don't have that turtle shell, then it's, you're going to fall to mush when you hit the bottom. There are people that accomplish great things even in the face of adversity. And it's because they're ready to bounce. They're ready to bounce back like that Super Bowl. And so I would take a Super Bowl with me every day. I'd go to the gym. Every time I would be in a challenging situation, every time that my back hurt or I didn't know if I could accomplish something and I'd bounce the Super Bowl and remind myself that I wasn't going to be able to rebound unless I stayed strong, unless I had that turtle shell. And it was the visual reminder I needed in order to come back from that injury. And, you know, it's something I still use today and remind my kids that, yes, it's okay to have setbacks, but you have to be ready and willing to have that hard shell in order to bounce back. So we should all have Super Bowls in our house. (laughs) That's why I hand them out at speeches and people tell me that, 
you know, years later, they still have their Super Bowl at their desk and they bounce it and remind themselves that, you know, success is how high you bounce after you hit rock bottom. The theme of this episode is responding to challenges that involve work and life. The podcast has countless more conversations that matter with women making a difference and doing things outside the bounds of what is expected. We admire women who are open and vulnerable about the self-doubt that happens in a high-pressure zone and yet go forward. My conversations with these guests perfectly embody the best of this ethos. You've been listening to the When Women Fly podcast, an independent creative project founded by me, Sylvia Winter, to amplify stories and expand our vocabulary when it comes to ways in which we fly, how we do it, and why it is important. Next week, we have the season finale. We are wrapping up season three and the year on the rise, and I want you to be part of it, all of it. Our website, whenwomenfly.com, has more each week on the episode of books and links and ideas. You can also sign up for our newsletter, Airborne, which I put out periodically to support all the conversations that go out on the air. You can write us at hello at whenwomenfly.com or even better, submit your voice onto podinbox.com slash whenwomenfly. All these links are in the show notes. Have you reviewed the When Women Fly podcast on Apple Podcasts yet? Your reviews help us get bigger and better guests, and I need your support. You could write a quick review or just tap the five stars. It's super easy. Please and thank you. If this episode or any episode resonates with you, share it, and you just might spark a pivotal moment for someone. Okay, that's a wrap. Have a great week. I am so glad of all the things that you have been here today. I send you love and light and strength and flight. However, that shows up for you today. The world needs women who fly. Let's keep learning together. Be bold, be brave, and fly. I'll see you next time.